I'm Michelle, certified personal trainer and certified nutrition coach. And I'm Marissa, and I'm a certified nutrition coach and group fitness instructor. And this is the Strong and Simple Podcast. We're tackling the latest fads, trends, and hot topics in the nutrition, wellness, and fitness industries using science and conversation to bust myths and give you the information you need to navigate the bullshit. Tune in for your twice a week truth bombs every Tuesday and Friday. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Strong and Simple podcast. This is Marissa, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Michelle. Hey, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) And we are joined today by Dr. Katie Wadland. And I'm really excited to introduce Katie. I've known her for quite a while, going back to my Wakefield days. So just to give you a kind of quick intro, Katie is a doctor of physical therapy and board certified geriatric clinical specialist with over 14 years of experience in inpatient, outpatient, and home care rehabilitation settings. She's worked at some of the region's best hospitals and home care agencies, including Spalding Rehab Hospital, Braintree Rehab Hospital, and Beth Israel Leahy Health at home. She has expertise working with older adults, people with neurological disorders, and other complex medical issues. She's the owner of Healthy Aging Essentials Physical Therapy and provides in-home physical therapy and wellness services for people living in Wakefield and the surrounding towns. So Katie, Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. I got to say, my intro sounds way better when you read it than when I read it in my head. This is good. I got to keep this. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So, Katie, tell us a little bit about kind of how you got into what it is that you do. Yeah, I mean, I can, the longer the short of it, I guess I became a physical therapist. Um, I really was interested early on in working with people with disabilities. I spent my years when I was like 11 to 20 something working um, with people with disabilities in a variety of settings. I taught swim classes. I ran summer programs, um, did a lot of babysitting, a lot of kind of respite care. Um, So I knew that was what I wanted to do. And then when I got to college, um, I ended up taking a physiology class and a neuroscience class and really fell in love with the study of um, neuroscience. And from there, I kind of tried to figure out, all right, how can I work with people with disabilities, but also really, you know, focus on the scientific part of it. Um, I did some internships, sort of whittled it down to an allied health profession and went into PT school. Um, and the rest is history. I guess the, the more recent history is I worked for um, outpatient neuro settings for about five years after I graduated. That's when I was at Spalding and Braintree Rehab and then a small clinic in Medford. Um, and then I ended up switching over to home health about eight or 10 years ago at this point um, and loved it. I really thought it would be a new challenge for me and something different. And I really fell in love with kind of the more medical side of things. When you work with older adults, there's a lot more medical than I was expecting. You basically Mm -hmm. become a PT and a nurse and a paramedic some days and a you're triaging all the time. So it really was fascinating to me. So I loved that part of it. I loved working with patients in their own homes. I really enjoyed getting to know people's families and sort of how they live and and learning how to help them in their own environment. Um, And then COVID came around and I was home with my kids because they got kicked out of school and sent home to learn with me. And from there, I took a leave um, for my family and found out that I am not meant to be a stay-at-home mom full-time. So I went back to the drawing board and, and tried to figure out a new plan okay. for myself. <laughs> and this is what I came up with. I decided to launch my own practice. 
Um, my plan was just for it to be me, to be, you know, be able to treat a little bit when my kids are in classes and go from there. Um, and I found that it's, it's a really undermet need. There is a lack of physical therapists that do what I do. Um, you know, people tend to see a home health agency or they go to outpatient, but there's a lot of people who really struggle to get out and about. Um, and those are the folks that I really specialize in working with. It's like the, you know, the, the older adult, the person with a neurological impairment that may need some help getting around, may not drive. Um, and that's where I kind of found my niche and the practice has grown tremendously. And I now have, um, six other therapists working with me, which is amazing. So five PTs wow. and OP and myself. And we are busy and um, we've been able to branch out a little bit and do community fitness as well and a lot of community education. So it's been a wild ride. It wasn't planned. Um, and this certainly wasn't my goal to open <laughs> my own practice, but life is funny. And here I am. Wow. That is so cool. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Having a team of six folks is that's amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. It's, it's funny. I thank you. I really, I never even applied for a manager job. Like it was never in my kind of personal goals was to be a manager, director, or anything. You know, my husband always asked me, Oh, do you want to apply for that open director role? And I'd be like, not in a million years, not for me, not interested. Um, <laughs> but I love, I really like teaching and I feel like it's given me a chance to, to use my creative side more and teaching my clinicians. Um, and you know, it's, it's been a really nice, change of pace for me to learn sort of how to, to manage a business from the other side of things and manage employees from the other side of things and do things the right way. You know, things, you yeah, know, I've okay. seen a lot in my days and I feel like it's given me the chance to really create from scratch a practice that I think really is best for both the patients and the employees. And that's a really unique quality. I think of my practice. Yeah. Love that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that starting from scratch with being able to build what is best for both patients and for your staff? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, if you ask somebody, what was PT like, you know, you'll hear a lot of different things. Sometimes you'll hear I had a great therapist, but the food was terrible or I was rushed out of the hospital and sent home really quickly. Um, or opposite, you know, the PT was really distracted. They had a bunch of patients and there was an aide working with me and I just ha saw them for 10 minutes and then, you know, went on my way. Um, there's a lot of other constraints therapists have to work under when they work for a big company or a big hospital. Um, there's productivity constraints, there's financial considerations, you know, so a lot of that, as much as we want to be like the best we can be all the time, there's other factors at play. And we, you know, sometimes there's limitations on how often we can see a patient, how long we can see a patient, you know, all that, there may be long wait lists. So I was able to sort of start from scratch and really decide what are my priorities. Um, and my priorities for the patient care was one-on-one, -on -one, no rush. You know, we're with patients for a full hour usually, which gives a lot more time for education, a lot more time for some of the soft skills that I think are really critical to improving therapeutic alliance. And this is stuff we've known forever, but now there's science behind it. You know, they're showing that some of our skills are no better than someone else's skills, but if you have better soft skills and better therapeutic alliance, patients do better, which isn't surprising. You know, it's, it's really when someone buys into what you're working on they they take more ownership and they do better. Um, so the other part that I think I've been able to really focus on in, in improving patient care is education. Um, you know, the way we operate is we bill per unit, you know, we bill 15 minutes of therapeutic exercise and 10 minutes of gait training. 
and you're supposed to fit everything into these little chunks of time. Um, and typically you're busy. You're seeing a patient 30 minutes, then you're seeing another patient for 30 minutes, and then you're running to the next one. So by having, you know, longer spots in the home, less distractions, there's time for all of that billable stuff. And there's also time for education and listening and taking the time to make sure your patient really understands what you just discussed and all that. And on the other Mm -hmm. side of things, my therapists are not overwhelmed. You know, we see four or five people a day. Everybody makes their own schedules. That's my number one rule I tell people. I'm like, I can't promise you're going to be busy every single day. And so far, everyone's been busy every single day. So that was silly silly to even bring it up. But <laughs> I've always said, like, if you need a day off, like, you need to ask me for a day off. Like, put it on your calendar. Block your day. I don't care if you're going to the beach or going to the doctor. It doesn't matter to me. We're all individuals. We're all responsible. Take responsibility for your own caseloads. Ask for help when you need it. And I'm able to really, I'm trying to really balance off giving my therapist autonomy and giving them really good support and education. So, I mean, that's sort of, that's probably a long-winded answer to that question. No, I don't think it's long-winded at all. I think, I think you hit on so many really important points and I can absolutely see how the environment that you created definitely benefits both the patient as well as the therapists on your team. I know like I've, I've had, been in the physical therapy setting many, many times because I'm really good at hurting myself. Um, <laughs> A true. plus. A plus for hurting myself. But, I, you know, and I've, and I've worked with a lot of people who have done physical therapy. And one of the things that I hear over and over again from them is they feel like it doesn't help them because, mm-hmm. you know, insurance only allows you 10 sessions or whatever it is. And you feel like you're part of this just revolving door. It's like mm-hmm. you're in, you walk, you squat, you sit, you leave, and maybe they'll email you some exercises to do at home and they don't understand why they're doing those things. Mm-hmm. They don't understand how they're connected to their betterment in terms of their condition. And so they stop going and exactly. then they never get to reap the benefits of it. Yep. Yeah. And it's, yeah, and it's not, there's no magic pill. You know, like I, I love it. I have a uh, patient's mm-hmm. daughter asked me last week, you know, he's really struggling to get out of the chair. What's the best exercise? And I'm like, it's getting out of the chair. Like, I'm, there's not a magic solution. Like, it's literally mm-hmm. doing the things that are difficult over and over and over again until they're stronger. Um, and I think that, you know, therapy, historically, a lot of people expect physical therapists to fix the problem. I'm going to go in here and they're going to fix my pain. They're going to yeah. fix my walking. They're going to fix my balance. But it's not, it doesn't work that way. You know, it's it's really an interactive relationship between the therapist and the patient. And if you're not teaching exactly the why, like you mentioned, there's no buy-in and there's no reason to, to carry over what you're learning. Um, you'll, I mean, you should, mm-hmm. so you should interview one of my class participants at the senior center. They're probably like, she's great, but she gives a lot of lectures. Like I, I'll be like, we're doing squats and here's why. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I feel like it's myself. there's always this layer of like, we're doing this, but here's the why this is why I care so much. You know, this is why you should care so much. And, and this is why you'll be successful if you do. Yeah. Yeah. I know it can be so challenging. I feel like, I mean, I think from a perspective of, you know, people like me and Michelle who like, you know, fitness is part of our careers. Like we love knowing the why, like mm-hmm. we geek out on that why, but for other people, they're like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> So I could totally, totally see that. But I think there's so much value to knowing why you're doing things, regardless of whether or not you're interested in why, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
I think it provides a little bit of buy-in too by understanding like if I do this exercise and I do it consistently, then this will likely be easier for me or I can be more efficient at this or I can be more independent at this if I keep practicing it. Um, right. So it can give a little bit of an improved why. Yeah. And I think one of the goal yeah. setting piece too. I think like, I, I sit down with each of my patients at the beginning. Mm. I'm like, what, why do you care about all this stuff? What's your goal? You know, and that should be the forefront of any good clinician's plan is really identifying like, what is the primary yeah. goal? And if you're not working towards that, like you're not going to get results for anyone, you know? So I think it's really keeping that in mind and then progressing your plan based on, you know, achieving near parts of that goal to the end of the goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one thing that folks tend to struggle with when it comes to physical therapy or even like rehab in general is feeling like it's not moving quickly enough, right? Or, you know, getting frustrated with like, okay, how many more sit to stands do I have to do? Like, you know, this is like a rudimentary movement or things like that. But, you know, I mean, obviously it's consistency that makes the difference with these things. You have to persist. You have to continue doing with that doing those things in order to actually get stronger. Do you ever have clients that voice frustration with that? And how do you approach that, that, you know, wanting to progress, but not being there yet? Yeah. Especially with the older adults, I'm going to backtrack, I think a little bit on your question, but a lot of the goals I have for my older adults is not necessarily progression. It's prevention of getting worse. You know, that's sometimes even more frustrating. Like, Mm. especially like if you think about bone density, here's a great example people come in, they want to improve their bone density. Chances are, honestly, most people are not going to improve their bone density, but they are going to prevent it from getting a lot worse by doing the exercises and they're going to prevent falls and prevent fractures. So sometimes like the null is actually the win, right? You're not improving something, but you're preventing yeah. down the road. So, you know, you look at the different levels of prevention, the, the, the primary, secondary, tertiary prevention kind of schemas. Um, is that how you say that word? I never say it right. Schemas, skim. <laughs> I'll look it up later. I'll schemas. fact check myself. I think it's schemas. Schemas? <laughs> right? right? I, say, I say schema. It might be yeah. schema. It might be single. One schematics, right? All right. Schematics. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with this yeah, one later. It's schema. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think the solution to that is really setting stepwise goals, you know, and, and it happens all the time where a patient's goal is really not necessarily reasonable. They haven't walked in six months. They've been mm-hmm. in a wheelchair and they just want to walk again. And then if I actually dig in a little bit, you know, why do you want to walk in? What does that give you? I want to be able to leave my house. Well, there's other solutions for leaving your house besides walking. Like walking gives you an awful lot, but a power wheelchair might be the right thing for you because walking may not be a reasonable goal, but you can definitely, you know, achieve your goal of independence in a different manner. So sometimes teasing apart why the goal is so important can help figure out a better way to achieve it. Um, and also giving educated best guesses, you know, there's a lot of research out there on recovery times and, you know, I, I see some patients that have had strokes or brain injury and I can give them a pretty solid estimation. Like you're going to get a lot of progress in the first three months and then it's going to plateau a little bit. It's going to get frustrating and it's going to be, you know, a little slower for the next six months, but you have two years of window of opportunity. So it's, it's sort of setting the stage and expectations of what's reasonable what's lofty, you know, and I'm all about optimism. Like if a patient wants to work towards a goal that's lofty, I'm on board, but I'm also not going to give them false expectation of this is a realistic expectation to achieve with therapy. 
So there's, it's a balancing act all the time of, yeah. of not shutting someone's goals and dreams down, but finding ways to help them achieve mm. the, the like emotional kind of the goal, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that managing expectations around goal setting, um, as to, you know, it's great to have that stretch goal, um, but also recognizing what is achievable and challenging at the same time. Right. Um, and looking at like that expectation management might also be in how long it takes to reach that goal. So sure, we might be able to get you walking with a walker or with assisted technology, right? Like out of the wheelchair, but it might take you a year and a half to reach that goal. Whereas we can, you know, reach that bigger goal of independence using other technology to get you there in a shorter amount of time while we're still working on that sort of right. thing. Um, right. Absolutely. So. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I want to, I really want to talk more about physical therapy for aging populations. Mm. Cause I think that that's something that folks overlook so often. I think, and this could be a misconception, who knows, but I, I think folks tend to think of it for aging populations most often in terms of grandpa fell and he broke his hip and now he needs physical therapy to rehab from it. But, you know, just in the what 17 minutes we've been talking, you know, you've already alluded to the fact that, you know, physical therapy is a valuable part of injury prevention. It's a valuable part mm -hmm. of, you know, maintaining mobility, independence, things like that. So for folks that, you know, say they're caring for an aging relative, or maybe they're aging, maybe they are the aging relative. What are, what are some of the signs that physical therapy may be beneficial to that individual? Yeah. I mean, the biggest sign is you're struggling to do what you used to do easily. You know, that's the biggest thing is if you hmm. were normally, I, I always talk about the slippery slope of aging. So if you can picture like a slide, you know, at the very mm -hmm. top, there's the fun mm -hmm. status. You're young, you're active, you're working, you're um, having your kids, whatever you're doing, it's kind of like you're fully functional, 100%, right? All, all guns blaring. And then you slide mm -hmm. down and you become from fun to functional. And your day is really structured around just getting your day-to-day -day things done, right? Showering, dressing, mm -hmm. toileting, going to the grocery. Maybe you're doing like some care for grandkids, that kind of thing. So things are functional, but you're not able to really do all the fun things anymore. You may have stopped going to the club or playing golf or tennis or these things are, you know, you feel unbalanced, <laughs> but you're avoiding these things. So then you slide down even more, right? Into the, the kind of pre-frail area. And then you are in the hospital a lot. You're mm -hmm. having more, um, you're having a hard time managing your comorbidities. You know, most people come to me with at least one, if not five or six, you know, past medical history comorbidities, whether they're cardiac disease or neuropathy or a history of cancer or diabetes type two, whatever it may be. And then you end up, you know, progressing towards death. So my goal for everybody is to find out where they are in their slope and then teach them what they can achieve, right? Where can you be? The higher you are in the slope, the slower your progression down is and the easier, the more resilient you are um, in able to deal with whatever life throws at you, whether that's COVID or a fall or an exacerbation of your heart condition you know, and it's not going to become a surprise to you at all that the factors that improve your resilience are exercise, increased physical activity, proper nutrition, stress management, good sleep, and enough support. 
So it's, it always cracks me up. This stuff like isn't rocket science at all. It's like, just take care of your body. And then a lot of these other things really um, level off and don't become so problematic. And it's, it's overwhelming to most people mm-hmm. if they start from a very low level to even think about sort of moving up in that slope. Um, so that's where I come in and I'm a really good, I think I'm really good at sort of guiding people to what they can do and giving them some, um, you know, empowering them that you have the ability to make changes, whether that, you know, I'm not going to start someone who hasn't walked in six months going for a jog outside. Like we scale things, you know, I do a lot of functional strength Mm -hmm. training just like you guys do, but I scale it. So today, like I have my fitness class at the, um, senior center and I love watching them because these are a lot of women who thought that I was batshit nuts at the beginning. <laughs> like I went in there and they thought I was like, <laughs> I was like, all right, today we're doing like squats with thrusters and we're doing, you know, deadlifts. And I just sort of revamped like a functional strength class to really be just like you guys would coach a 20 year old, but modified to meet their needs and, and work mm. within their body types and really addressing whatever injuries people had in the classes. Um, you know, I think that there's so much to, to aging that you can modify based on behavioral choices and activity levels. And people have no idea the impact is like there. I always, when I give a lecture called the magic mm-hmm. pill sometimes. And I talk about that physical activity and exercise can reduce your chance of dying prematurely by 30%. And if your doctor went in and said, here's a pill, there's no side effects, there's no copay, and you're going to reduce your chance of dying by 30%. Like who wouldn't be like, yep, I'll take the pill, you know? So I feel like there's a lot of um, missing education there that people have the uh, the ability to control the trajectory of their lives um, by making simple changes, sometimes not so simple changes. Um, But, you know, giving people back that power, I think, as they get older, that they don't just have to, like, wait to die. You know, I think there's a lot more that can be done to manage chronic disease, to manage pain, to manage arthritis, to manage fall risk, all this stuff that you know, we associate with aging to manage losing your independence. You know, these are really big concerns for people, you know, and it, and it makes people be more withdrawn. It keeps people in their homes. It keeps people away from the community when they're scared about being seen with their cane or their walker or that sort of thing. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of funny. I mean, when you, so often I hear if there is a particularly, active senior and somebody comments on how active they are sometimes they'll jokingly respond like well if i stop then i'll die and it's like well you're not wrong yeah, right <laughs> you know like there it's actually is some true. truth in that it's very true yeah. Um, yeah 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 and it's you know there there's two different components it's physical activity and exercise and they're different and they're separate and i think that mm-hmm. some people yeah. think like i'm not an exerciser i'm not going to go to the gym i don't like classes i can't do it my knees hurt And it's not just exercise that counts, just moving your body in a way that feels Mm -hmm. good is beneficial. You know, and I think that's where my job is, is trying to help Mm -hmm. people find ways to move their body that feel good. Like, I don't want to do therapy and have someone be like, this hurts. I don't like it. I don't want you to come back. Right. I'm always trying to find ways to to make people successful Mm -hmm. and to feel good. And people do like, I'm sure you've seen it a million times with your clients and, you know, they think it's going to be hard work and it is hard work and they're, they're sore, but they feel so much better afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. You're totally speaking our language. Move yep. in a way that feels good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just different stages of the game, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think that, you know, we live in a culture where we do, we're moving less than we have historically, right? Mm -hmm. We spend more time sitting, we spend more time in the car, uh, commuting, we don't necessarily have the same amount of time that may have existed for some folks, you know, 50 years ago to go on long walks or whatever. Um, but there's also this preconceived notion of like what movement is and what exercise is that's perpetuated by the fitness industry mm -hmm. um, that makes people have this, oh, exercise isn't for me, movement isn't for me, it's going to be so uncomfortable. I'm going to hate that, that it's like mm -hmm. scary. Yeah. Um, so really trying to shift that kind of mindset for an entire population of people is a huge undertaking. Um, yeah. And you're doing I'll, it well. So I'll thank you. I'll give you an example. Like we did our class today and I, always, I try to put a finisher in sometimes, you know, and I did a modified, a mountain climber, burpee, Tabata finisher after they had done their functional strength. And of course I got Ooh. like the normal groans and I'm like, it's time for mountain climbers and <laughs> And they all did it. <laughs> I just love hearing the reactions. Like they don't think they're capable of doing this sometimes and then they do. And while we're walking and warming down, I really said like, I love a finisher because it's an emotional experience where you think you don't want to do anything else because you're so tired. And then your body is there for you and it can do it. And that shows you, you can do hard things when you are exhausted and you can do hard things when you feel like you can't do hard things. And that itself is a lesson for anybody. I feel like to know that, you know, you're capable of more than you think you are and to push yourself when you're at your tiredest, that's how you learn that. And I'll do, I'll do finishers in the house with people Absolutely. who are such a powerful much lower level. Like you don't have to do a burpee mountain climber. It can be, you know, two laps around the kitchen, walking as fast as you can after you do your functional strength in the, in the kitchen. Like there's so many variations with the same, you know, fitness forward approach we can use with, with older adults. Yeah. It's such a powerful thing to observe in yourself too. The, that, yeah. that moment where you're like, I can't, I don't want to. And then you do. It's a really amazing thing. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could speak a bit to like, muscle loss, bone density loss, particularly in women. I know we have a lot of women listeners. Um, and we've done episodes talking about menopause, things like that, but I think there's not a lot of understanding and knowledge about the relationship between just gaining ages, gaining numbers on your age and muscle loss, bone density loss. Um, so can you speak a little bit to, you know, what is the typical pattern that we see in terms of people who are aging, losing that, that muscle and kind of things that they, people can do around that, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I think that there's changes that happen with aging, no matter what you do, right? There's some natural physiological changes you cannot control. Yeah. You know, we have, um, more adipose tissue and less lean muscle as we age, right? There's decreased collagen content. So collagen is responsible for the joints, flexibility for the muscle regrowth. And then you combine that with, you know, less protein intake. People tend to eat smaller amounts, less protein throughout the day. And it sort of, um, and then you add menopause and you add lack of estrogen and that throws everything off. And that all combines to a, you know, a slow loss of muscle strength and a loss, especially of the power fibers. So there's three different kinds of muscle fibers. There's the endurance muscle fibers that are meant to like hold you up all day long, kind of keep you up nice and tall. 
there's the muscle strength fibers that are meant for like lifting a weight, pushing a weight. Um, and then there's the power fibers and those are the ones that move quickly. So those are like the jumping muscles or moving quickly out of the way of a car, that kind of thing. So we lose, we keep the endurance muscle fibers most of the time. And then we lose the power ones the most and the strength ones secondary. That said, what they have found is that older adults can gain strength even if they don't great gain muscle mass. So there's huge benefits of strength training for older adults and especially power training, even if you're not seeing the physical changes as much as you want to necessarily. You might not see the muscle hypertrophy you're expecting from doing strength training because there is more adipose tissue. There is less lean muscle. What happens is that the muscle gets... Um, better innervated. So every muscle has a motor unit from your brain that goes from your brain down your spinal cord into your muscles. And those basically can increase how many junctions they have. So there might be one and then you do strength training and there's five. So that muscle is now a better, more efficient muscle without actually changing in size at all. So that's sort of how muscles tend to get stronger with age. We can also do the same thing for the power fibers. We can make the power fibers more strong and that's a really important thing that's often overlooked in older adults is working on power strengthening. Um, people are often afraid to jump because we've been told if you jump and you have osteoporosis, you're going to break all your bones. So not completely accurate. There's been lots of studies that show <laughs> that it's, <laughs> it is very safe. Um, I'll get more to bone density in a minute, but it's, it's quick movements and strong movements that really increase the power strengthening. So what I typically see in mm. senior classes is low level, high repetition, repeated exercise, which is basically increasing endurance strength, which we already know already exists in older adults. That's fine. That's actually not that impaired. What older adults are not taught to do is the higher intensity, higher um, RPE, higher exertion, challenge strengthening that they need to do to, to really tackle those other muscle fibers that do get weaker with age. So that's the muscle mass mm -hmm. part of it. Then you get bone density. So bone density is the highest is going to be around 30. So I hate to say it. I think we're all too late, right? We're all, I think we're all past 30. I know I'm way yep. past 30. <laughs> so yep. Hit yep. That was, that was Ship great. Ship sailed. Ship sailed. We're, already, yep. we're already on the downhill slide here. So we lose about between 0.5 and 1% of, of bone mass per year from the age of 30 till around menopause. Mm -hmm. Around menopause, we lose between mm -hmm. five and 7% more because that sudden drop in estrogen. So ideally, like I should mm -hmm. be having this talk with eight-year-old girls, not with whoever's listening to your podcast, because that's the age where you want to start <laughs> loading up your bones, doing weight-bearing exercise, getting into some mm -hmm. sort of you know routine strengthening. If you don't do any weight-bearing exercise, if you're not an avid active kid, by the time you hit 30, you're already at a, a mm. disadvantage. Your bones are already weaker than they should be. So we want to like add as much as we can to the bone bank early on. So we start as high as we possibly can. So when age does its thing that it's going to do, you know, we, we go down that slope slower. That said, mm. we have so much we can do no matter what age you are to increase your bone mass and to prevent the sequelae. Again, my plurals are terrible sequela sequela i'm not sure <laughs> i love them uh, i didn't say latin i don't know <laughs> excuse me so you know that's when the strength training gets really really important and i think that most i would say at least half of the older adults i speak to 
on a regular basis. I say, do you exercise? Do you like to exercise? They go, yep, I walk every day. You know, and that is not adequate exercise and resistance training enough to build muscle or to keep the bones strong. So you need to do exercise that stimulates mm -hmm. the bones more than they're used to, to handling. So that's how bones rego. So there's a, a concept called Wolf's Law. So if you break a bone, the way the bone mm -hmm. heals is by laying on new bone. And the way bone grows normally, if you don't break a bone, is you feel a stimulus, whether that stimulus is um, like an axial loading. So there's weight bearing going through the long bones or muscles are actually pulling on the bones when you're doing a contraction. So that stimulus tells the bone, oh, I'm not quite strong enough. Time to put more bone layer on. And that's how you build bone strength. So, you know, I get a lot of women in my, I teach a strong bones class and osteoporosis class. A lot of women who ask like, if I take your class, will it improve my bone density? Well, I'd love to be like, yes, or your money back. Sure. But I can't say that. What I can say <laughs> is going to prevent you from losing more bone that you'd be losing if you did nothing. So it's really important to start now. It's really important mm -hmm. to work on your posture so that forward rounding doesn't happen because it's that forward rounding that causes so many osteoporotic compression fractures in your, in your spinal column. And it also, it changes your mm -hmm. like internal viscera, like it squishes things. So when you're forward, you get more trouble breathing, you get more trouble digesting, you know, it slows motility down. So coming up strong, even if you're not changing your bone density and keeping your posture strong, makes a huge difference in osteoporosis management. And then you add the whole fall prevention layer to it. You can have osteoporosis for 80 years. As long as you don't fall, you're in good shape, right? You might have a compression fracture from kind of spinal compression, mm -hmm. but the big, the big problems are when you fall and break a hip or you fall and break your wrists. So if you can improve your, yeah. your balance and your fall prevention, that's half the battle. And that has nothing to do with your bone density. So there's, again, there's always like different sides to the picture. Yeah. 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 I, think such a, I think this was reassuring. So it's like, it's never actually too late. I mean, you can't guarantee growing new bone or, you know, increasing bone density, but it's never too late to do something to improve that situation, which is, I think, good for folks to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I actually know somebody, I won't name who it is, but this person has severe bone density loss and this, this is not made up. She sneezed. And in that jerking forward to sneeze, actually fractured a vertebrae. Oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah. Because her yeah. bone density loss was so severe. It's, it's, yeah. it's oh insane. Yeah. And most people don't even know they have fractures. Like I, people come home, like I saw the doctor and I have a fracture in my spine, like, and I didn't know it was there. And that yeah. happens all the time where there's just these chronic fractures from the compression in the spinal cord and the spinal column, excuse me. And they go sort of undiagnosed for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. I can't imagine like walking around with a crack in my back, literally yeah. <laughs> and not knowing it, but yeah, I mean, bodies told, are weird. Yeah. You get told these things by a doctor and then people panic and they're afraid to do anything, right? They're not told yeah. you have osteoporosis. Mm. Here's how to move safely. It's really important to keep moving. You know, they say, don't reach your toes. Mm -hmm. Don't flex forward. Don't do this. Don't do that. They don't tell them what they can do. Um, and that's the most important yep. thing is not being afraid to move. Like people are always like, I'm, I was told I can't twist, you know? And I'm like, well, mm -hmm. did you drive here? Did you look behind you in the car? Did you wash your hair this morning? Like all the things that we do functionally, you have to keep your range of motion and your mobility up 
and it's safe to move in functional yeah. patterns. It's not safe to have someone twist you at like a stretch lab into those positions, you know, or, or <laughs> right. carry a giant weight while you're doing it. But I want my patients and my clients to feel again, empowered that they can move safely in a way that's going to be beneficial. And that's a lot of, it's a lot of empowerment education, like, you know, sometimes handholding, taking them through motions and be like, yep, this is okay. Yep. This is okay too. Yep. Still okay. You know? Hmm. Yeah. What you just said reminded me of something I recently learned. I know previously the conventional wisdom for, you know, rehabbing from an injury is like, don't use it, especially when it comes to like the back, you know, assuming it's not like a catastrophic yep. injury. But I know now the, the, the convention is no, you, you should be moving yep. when, when you have an injury, don't, don't go immobile. Um, right. Is that the same for aging populations? Yep. A hundred percent, even more so. So the, you know, we were always told rice, right? Rest, ice, compress, elevate, any injury have rice. That was sort of disproven. And the new acronym we love is peace and love. Um, have you guys seen that acronym? I, can, I can't even begin to tell you what it stands for unless I look it no, up. No, but I love it. <laughs> I know, right? It's way more positive. <laughs> is your body needs movement to heal. When you cut yourself, you know, what happens is the blood comes down, you bleed, and then it, it clots and it brings in all the white blood cells and it heals up the cut you know, a muscle tear is no different. And when you're sore from a workout, that's muscle tears. That's all it is, is tiny little muscle tears, which is mm -hmm. how we actually build muscle. You, again, same thing as the bones. Mm -hmm. The only way your muscle knows to, to build more strength is it gets little tiny micro tears when you lift too much, and then it lays down more collagen fibers and more proteins and makes more muscle. So um, mm -hmm. I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Where was Peace I? and love. Peace <laughs> and love. So now they're really encouraging you to move in pain-free ranges because any movement, especially like little like muscle contractions and active range of motion is going to increase blood flow, which is going to bring those good healing, you know, leukocytes and white blood cells. And then it flushes out the debris. So all this stuff needs to go somewhere. So when you're swollen, it's just blood flow that gets stuck there and doesn't get flushed back out. So by doing comfortable active range of motion, mobility, muscle squeezing actions, it brings the good stuff, it gets rid of the bad stuff, and it helps you heal faster. So you add that on top of aerobic exercise and the benefits of aerobic exercise, and then you're increasing oxygen flow throughout your body. So you want oxygen. Mm -hmm. So if you're, you know, that's the, and endorphins and pain relief. So all the things we sort of taught historically are in the garbage because really what's most beneficial, like you said, is kind of active, gentle, comfortable movement. Yeah. You don't want to do the thing that hurts. Mm -hmm. You know, if you sprained an ankle, I don't want you to all of a sudden start doing heavy ankle strengthening. That's not what I'm saying, but doing, you know, ankle alphabets until it really feels better is the way to go or something just to get motion in it and keep it active and keep it moving. And then building up slowly. That's the other part. Once things are settled, yeah. Then building back up to your training, nice and slow, right? Not jumping in to where you were before you had an injury. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting because so many, it, this new protocol or recommendations is still just so not widely known. Like if you do the Google for, I twisted my ankle, what to do when I twisted my ankle, it still gives you the, the rice protocol, the rest yeah. mm -hmm. elevation. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and people still automatically, oh, I hurt my back. I'm going to go put ice on it. I'm going to, you know, and um, this information is still not out it, there as much as mm -hmm. I feel like it should be. <laughs> yeah. I totally yeah, agree. No, absolutely. I, I mean, like, I'm not. Yeah. I mean, I, I was recently given the same advice and <laughs> was told, no, that was wrong advice. Um, can we, and I don't know if this is a thing, can you mm -hmm. put to bed the debate, ice or heat? <laughs> it, so this injury. is a classic heat, heat Ice joke. or heat, heat or ice. That's what we always say. It depends because it does. It depends. Um, of course it, it depends. does. Of course. <laughs> it depends why. So, I, so ice is an anti-inflammatory, right? If you have an inflamed area, it makes sense to put ice on it. However, like we're talking about this new peace and love thing, you don't necessarily want to ice if you want the inflammation to be there. So that's sort of where that gets um, murky. Mm. Um, heat increases inflammation. So heat brings blood flow. So heat can be helpful. Say, I mean, I aside from the science, I'm not going to go into the science behind it because I don't have enough studies to be able to like, here's the answer to the solution, this question. What I say is if you have a mm -hmm. tight muscle, heat is great. Because the heat is going to bring in blood flow, it's going to loosen it up, and then you can stretch it out. So if you are like, I just have a, a tight quad and I'm dying, I get it stretched, I would, yes, I would heat, but you can also exercise. So exercise is heat. If you take a nice brisk walk, that is producing yeah. heat in your muscle. So whether you heat or exercise, you do want to warm something up before you stretch it if you're really tight. Um, if you have, let's talk about arthritis. If you have osteoarthritis, the last thing you want to do is to bring in more inflammation. So you don't necessarily want to put heat on an achy joint if you have arthritis, but you can put ice on. It's not going to probably do too much if it doesn't go in that far. First of all, if you have rheumatoid arthritis, moist heat is actually the best thing to do for it. So it's really kind of like disease specific. Um, yeah, yeah, so I, no, I can't put it to bed. <laughs> it remains a mystery. Oh, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Next time I'll come more prepared with a good solution. To <laughs> I do both. I mean, you can alternate. Ice and I really just wanted you to. Solution. <laughs> I, I really wanted you to just say heat because I just love laying on a heating pad. It's like you know my favorite I'm thing. I'll give you what I tell my patients. Here's what I say, Marissa. I say, if heat feels good, heat. If ice feels good, ice. Right? All right. Neither one of them are going to make and break a situation. Yep. I think yep. that if it feels good and it reduces your pain and it yeah. brings down your cortisol and it brings down your stress, half the, the deal, breathing. Okay, here's the answer. Ready? You know what's better than ice and heat? Breathing. 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 Oh, okay. Seriously. All right. Because what happens with any of these injuries is that you're, you're going to fight or flight. Like something hurts all of a sudden and you're like, crap, what do I do? I have to go to work tomorrow. I have to ice and heat or something to get rid of this pain. Right? Your cortisol goes up, you go into fight or flight, your body starts to freak out, and then your muscles get tighter. Like do an, do an um, example for me. So say you are surprised. What happens? Your body. What do you do? Someone like jumps out. You. you breathe in, you suck in your yeah. breath, and you get tight, right? So that's your body's instinct mm -hmm. when you get surprised or painful out of the blue is to hold a breath and tighten up. So the opposite holds true for reducing mm -hmm. tension and anxiety. A nice slow breath mm. in and then a long breath out <sighs> triggers the vagus nerve to tell the body everything's okay. It's time for the parasympathetic system to kick on and downregulate. 
and chill out. And that's what allows you to relax and let the muscle relax. So actually, I think breath probably has more science behind it at this point than ice or heat combined. Hmm. You're a really good teacher. You are. Thank you. <laughs> See, I told you. If you I, you're you're welcome. Class members, <laughs> like, yeah, she, they told me she'd do fitness, but all she does is teach us things. <laughs> but that education goes a long way because then they can implement things without right. you necessarily always having to be by their side 24-7 because you can't be by their side 24-7. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. I had a woman in my class. She slipped on the mat when she was getting up and her back went out. That moment where you're like, ah, oh, it's too late. It's all tight, right? And I talked her through that same thing. We sat down. I talked her through some breathwork exercises. And then I showed her how to do some gentle mobility. She could not believe it got better. She's like, I would be laying in bed for three days normally, waiting for it to go away. And she's like, but it was better before I left class. So just cutting the cycle of like panic and anxiety and pain and letting your body know it's okay. Mm -hmm. All a muscle spasm is, is your body's trying to prevent injury to your spinal cord. That's that's what it is. Your body's tightening up because it's trying to prevent Mm -hmm. something from injuring itself. If you can take the moment to sort of calmly breathe and literally have that conversation, like there's nothing happening, nothing's at risk. There's no bear. I don't need to run, do your breathing. And then things tend to relax. And if they're relaxed, you can do that mobility work. You can do that aerobic exercise, which we just talked about is more effective than not doing anything at all and letting everything stiffen up. Yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah. That's like, like, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I'm like just picturing the scenario in my head in the class. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like you thought it was. I was like, wait, I don't know why. Problem. <laughs> it's you know, I really mm-hmm. like that. Oh but my what gosh. I've really gained from like switching into geriatrics and really just becoming more educated in the last couple of years about this stuff is it's so much more holistic than I ever thought. Like you just can't solve things by fixing one mm. joint, and you cannot solve things by addressing one problem at a time. Nothing happens in a vacuum. You have to look at the big picture. You have to be open-minded about the power of, you know, your own thoughts and your own breath and, you know, what social determinants, you know, have an impact on your patient care. It's just, there's so much more to to taking care Mm -hmm. of people than we used to think of, you know, let's mobilize a joint. Let's get hands-on and massage something. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I could use a massage right now, though. I, know. <laughs> I was like, well, that sounds lovely. <laughs> that sounds really good. <laughs> awesome. Well, Katie, this was this was such a great conversation. I feel like I learned so, so much. Um, and I'm sure Michelle has, too. I don't want to speak for you, Michelle. but <laughs> I, mean, I learned no, nothing. I absolutely have. I've been, like, noting little, like, so many parts of this this episode of this hour. I've been, like, making little notes, like, ooh, I want to highlight this when we, you know, post about this. Ooh, I want to mm-hmm. highlight this. So, literally, it's the entire episode. So, I <laughs> yeah. hope, I think, and I believe that everybody who listens to this episode is going to learn a lot and have something to take away from it. And hopefully y'all who are listening want to share this with other folks in your life um, to learn about Dr. Katie and also about, you know, how simple things you can do for yourself right here, right now to Mm -hmm. just age more independently and well. Um, Yeah. So yeah, totally. Yeah. So 
do you have any upcoming like special events or or anything coming up that you want our listeners to know about? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess I what I should have probably said at the beginning is that we do in-home therapy. So what we do, you know, our day jobs are all physical therapists and occupational therapists. We see patients in their homes, um, but we're an outpatient clinic. So you don't have to mm-hmm. be homebound like you would to get a normal VNA to come in. So we come see you, we take insurance, okay. we take Medicare. Um, so we do that's you know, what we do most of the time. Um, we also specialize in Parkinson's disease. So we have a number of us have a power move certification and a big LSVT certification. So we really specialize in Parkinson's disease care. That's really close to my heart. My mom has Parkinson's and she has for 18 years and she's a great example of the power of movement and keeping yourself healthy by being active. Um, so that's kind of what's available for us all the time. I also teach classes at the Wakefield Mm -hmm. senior center. Um, I teach every Tuesday and Friday. I do a strength training, functional fitness class on Tuesdays and a balance class, a strength and balance class on Fridays. We also are teaching, um, it's called strong and steady program at a number of other senior centers. We're teaching it at the Jenks center in Winchester, the Arlington um, council on aging. And we also sometimes teach the Steinberg center. So the Steinberg center in Concord is a wellness center. And that's where I teach my strong bones osteoporosis class through. So that's always available. I teach that twice a week virtually, and I can send you some links. Um, I am really excited to be training with so the city of Melrose is launching a new campaign to get everyone involved in Melrose, whether you live there or work there, um, certified as a mental health first aid um, certificate. So I'm going to be going to train myself. I know I'm really excited. So next week I'm going to the instructor training to be a mental health first aid instructor. So I'll be teaching these courses for the city of Melrose and they just um, sent out the brochure. They're free for anyone who lives or works in Melrose um to come in there's a couple trainings in october and november there's like the adult version and there's the the adolescent child version and it's a really awesome program like we didn't talk Mm -hmm. too much about mental health because it's really it's not normally in my wheelhouse however especially older adults are facing so many changes that they have a lot of anxiety and depression so we see it all the time in our clinic and we talk about you know, we're always fielding questions about mental health and sort of dealing with things on the fly. So the goal, so myself and Tammy, one of my therapists are being trained, not only to provide a service for the community, but also to be able to better serve our patients. You know, we want to be able to have the tools to identify when someone's having a mental health struggle, not only to be able to support them, but also get them to the right people for for more professional help. Um, That's coming up. Um, What else is coming up? I think that's all I can think of right now. Going to Nashville in a couple of weeks. That's coming up. That's awesome. Time. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Are we invited? <laughs> it's my getaway, my birthday getaway. So I'm pretty, pretty looking forward to this. <laughs> Ooh, nice. Well, happy early birthday. That sounds like a great way to spend it. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. This has been um, so fun. So if folks want to find... Oh, yeah, absolutely. This has been such a great uh, conversation. We'll make sure to link... All of those things, if you want to send us over those links, we'll put them in the show notes. And then we can also link to your website and your social media profiles there as well. Awesome. So everybody, make sure you go check Katie out and connect with her on social media. Visit her website and, you know, take up all these courses and activities that she has to offer. So wealth of information. Yes. Thanks, Katie.
Thanks. This has been an episode of the Strong and Simple podcast. If you'd like to learn more about any of the topics we've discussed or about any of our guests, please make sure that you visit us on Instagram at Strong and Simple Podcast. And if there's ever any topics, questions, concerns, anything that you would like to suggest to us, please feel free to email us at strongandsimplepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We, Michelle Farrell and Marissa Zabo of the Strong and Simple Podcast, reside on Pawtucket land. We acknowledge the land and the Pawtucket people, as well as the land and the people of the many Native nations of whom the land belongs. To respect and honor them and their land, as well as to be mindful of the harm colonialism has and continues to do on the Indigenous people of the United States and the world. This land acknowledgement is our commitment to support Indigenous peoples and their voices in the struggle against systemic oppression and for human rights, as well as to push against the canceling and erasure of their history, their stories, their culture, and their present. We encourage you to visit native-land.ca to discover whose land you are residing on, as well as ways to support Indigenous folks. content of this podcast represents the views and opinions of Michelle Farrell, Marissa Zabo, and their guests, and is not intended to be individualized advice or recommendations. Nothing in this episode is to be construed as medical advice or to substitute for individualized fitness or nutrition advice. Always consult with the appropriate professional for your own needs.